This episode of the Blackstick Global Podcast is sponsored by Blackstick Global Passport. Join aspiring Black expats, expats, and repats, where you can build community, get resources, and gain support along your journey abroad. You're invited to join Blackstick Global Passport. Inside Passport, you'll find exclusive workshops on everything from expat taxes, financial planning, insurance, job boards, accountability check-ins, and more more. You can even take Passport on the go with our app available for iOS and Android devices. Just click the link in the episode you're listening to or visit blacksitglobal.com and click on Passport. See you inside. And I said, oh my gosh, that's beautiful. That's gorgeous. You know, I'm not thinking about, you know, the business infrastructure. I'm just thinking about the beauty of the desert and, and going back into a country that's been here so much longer than the United States and history has derived from the Middle East. That's where it all started. So I went on that basis and here I am. When I got ready to leave, I did not tell my family until a week before I left. Close your eyes and imagine living a life you love, unapologetic and unbothered. Free from daily microaggressions from Karens and Kens. Free from the fear of police brutality and systemic racism. Wouldn't that feel amazing? Now open your eyes. What if I told you that it's possible? Hear inspiring stories and get the actual blueprints from brothers and sisters of the diaspora who are living out their wildest dreams abroad. You've heard the term, now be inspired by the movement. I'm Krishan Wright, and this is Blacksit Global. Welcome to another episode of the Blacksit Global podcast. I'm excited because I have the opportunity of speaking to one of my students in the Blacksit Global Move Abroad course. Tiffany Smith is joining me today from Saudi Arabia. Welcome to the show, Tiffany. Hello, everybody. <laughs> Tiffany, you have an interesting story on so many levels. You are a learning experience designer, and that is a field that is very in demand. And for some people who are either interested in that field or who are already in that field, they often don't think that those skills or even those opportunities are transferable abroad. So I definitely want to delve into that because I think it'll be really informative for our listeners. But before we get to all of that, I want to start with your origin story. So tell me a little bit about your life before you moved abroad. Okay. Well, I was originally a network engineer uh, before I morphed into a learning experience designer. And there was a, a statement a long time ago where they say you might have up to eight different types of professions before you pass on from this world. So I think I've lived at this point about five. Prior to network engineer, I was uh, doing accounting and bookkeeping. And then you fast forward to network engineer, I morphed then into instructional design. I also have some legal background, which also helps because right, nothing that you do is ever wasted. Becoming an instructional designer started out when I was like developing just, you know, how-tos for software. 
I was working at a company and we needed like, okay, well, we need to train the users on how to use the software for their computer. So I would write like the how-to instructions and found out that I was really good at it. Took it from there to go back and obtain my master's in organizational performance workplace learning, which is just really a long word for instructional technology (laughs) or instructional performance technology, as it's also known. And then the rest is history. I made the transition. I will say it was not easy. I did do a couple of blogs along the way, how to make a transition after being in a career field for 18 years, because I was probably a network engineer close to 18 years when I decided to move into instructional design. Second grade, I would think I was kind of slow at learning. I did not learn as fast as I needed to. And I was going to a private school. So my dear sister, Agnes, I remember her second grade, and she worked with me for a summer. And after that, I was on the honor roll, getting straight A's, and there was no stopping me. From there, I would say that I didn't even know what an instructional designer, LX designer was. I come from the day of you were either a teacher, a doctor, a lawyer, or an engineer. I um, was always fairly good at math. Science fascinated me. I'm not going to say I was the greatest at science. And I didn't even, I don't even think they had STEM or STEAM out there yet. I think it was just, like I said, you know, you're either a doctor, a lawyer, a teacher, or an engineer. Once I found out that you could actually enjoy and make money by writing and make lots of money by writing, because a lot of people don't like to write and they can't write, as an engineer, we know I mean, I'm not putting down engineers by no means, any type of engineer, but we know the devil's in the details, right? They want to tell you everything, not necessarily chunking. It's just like a brain dump. I had to work pretty hard to um, bring my writing probably up from a seven to a 10, but I didn't mind. And um, I actually found out that I was good at it later. So I'm not going to say I am the world's best grammar and linguist and what have you, but I can hold my own now. How long have you been in Saudi Arabia now? Uh, I've been in Saudi Arabia for four years as of December 2nd. Wow. And was this your first international assignment abroad? Uh, No, actually, I was in the Peace Corps. I was in Mali, uh, Timbuktu. There is a Timbuktu. So Timbuktu, Mali, which is in West Africa. And um, I actually went there straight out of college. And then I also had traveled to South America um, to explore a little bit. But I also had a couple of assignments there as well. I always knew as a child, similar to when you shared your story, that there had to be more than my front porch. I'm from metropolitan Chicago area, but I was born and raised in a small town. I guess it's a small town, (laughs) Elgin, Illinois. And my parents, we entertained, I guess you call them exchange students back in the day. So we entertained exchange students and we also had missionaries come stay with us. And I was just I thought that was normal. I thought everybody did that. <laughs> so <laughs> so I learned from them and I was just fascinated by their stories that they would share. And I was just like, I'm going to do this one day. I don't know how, but I'm going to do it. I'm going to make it happen. I remember my sister uh, became really good friends with one of the exchange students that stayed with us. Her name was Astrid. And I think she was from Holland. And it was so funny because she said, she came in and she's like, 
where are your servants? This is a very nice cottage. <laughs> and I had to laugh because I was like, this is a three-story house with a basement and bedrooms and, you know, upstairs, downstairs, full bathroom. This isn't no cottage, but I guess compared to her in Europe, it is a cottage. But so by me being young, I said, and she said, where are your servants? I said, you're looking at her. Oh, my gosh. That's hilarious. <laughs> I was like, you're looking at the servant right here, dear. But yeah, so that that's what prompted. And I just, I would read books and I would I would just, just lose myself like in an imaginary world and just pretend that, you know, one day and I just pray. And I said, one day, God, I know you're going to take me there. I didn't know how, um, but I knew he would do it. And then when I actually got to high school and college, uh, my first major, because I have a few degrees, my first major was international business. Uh, I did a minor in French and I uh, actually did a double major, international business and marketing. And so the reason that I did international business with an emphasis on foreign relations was the fact that I knew I wanted to be an expat. And it was because, you know, back then, you didn't, especially as a black person and a black female, you didn't, most people don't even know what an expat is. So I was really blessed to know it at an early age, but I just didn't know how to get there. And so I um, purposely did that uh, major to learn about different cultures, how to do business, how to act, how to adapt. And from there, I, I just, I kept the dream, but it was really hard. Uh, as you see, that was back when I was in high school and I'm really far from high school right now. <laughs> you know, give or take a little bit. <laughs> so you have this wonderfully diverse background and experience, like you said, exposure to different cultures through your parents having different people in the home visiting and this curiosity of either language and culture that's really catapulted you into your latest opportunity. But for many people, when they're considering their Black sit or a job transfer career mm -hmm. shift, Saudi Arabia <laughs> isn't one that pops. I've been doing this for a couple of years now, and I have to say you are the first. So <laughs> step me through like this opportunity and what made it so compelling? Because I'm just so curious to dive into this. For sure. Um, well, you're going to laugh. I always tell people this and they're like, are you serious? But I actually received an inquiry on LinkedIn out of all places uh, regarding a job opportunity here in Saudi Arabia. I didn't know it was in Saudi Arabia at the time. They said it was in the Middle East. So I pretty much told myself, as long as it wasn't um, any of the stands, any of the countries that end with the stands, <laughs> I should be good because I didn't, I didn't ask her at that point. So by that time, I had submitted my resume and everything. And then I said, oh, by the way, what country? <laughs> After the fact. So you see where I'm going with this, right? So I <laughs> submitted my resume. Then I said, oh, by the way, what country is this? In? And she's like, Saudi Arabia. And I'm like, huh. And I just, I just kind of had to laugh, right? Because I was like, huh, okay. So then there's this, I got it. I, this is my story and I'm sticking with it because it is the truth. 
there was this movie, you might have remembered it. It was called Lace. And it was with Phoebe Cates from Gremlins. I'm really dating myself right now. And so I remember this movie and it was taken partly in France, partly in the UK. And then the other part was in Saudi Arabia. And I was always so fascinated. It was one of my favorite movies. And I said, oh my gosh, that's beautiful. That's gorgeous. You know, I'm not thinking about, you know, the business infrastructure. I'm just thinking about, you know, the beauty of the desert and, and going back into a country that's been here so much longer than the United States and history has derived from the Middle East. That's where it all started. So I went on that basis and here I am. When I got ready to leave, I did not tell my family until a week before I left. <laughs> okay. So obvious yeah. question. How did that go? <laughs> uh, you, you probably know pretty much how that went. <laughs> so I knew that I, I love my family um, greatly. Unfortunately, I lost my father before I did come over here because I lost my oh, father in so 2017. Sorry. Thank you. But my, it was my sister and my aunt and I went to Chicago because I actually live in Atlanta. So I went to Chicago to see them and say goodbye. And um, it was real. it was tough because there was a lot of questions that they had and, and, and I couldn't answer. But I told them, I said, don't worry, I'll be okay. But I think what happens is that we as human beings and people, we tend to fear those things that we don't understand or that we don't know. So similarly to you hear all these things on the media about the Middle East and this and that and that and this. And parts of it, yes, is true, but there's a lot of parts that aren't so true. And so I went on the basis of saying, you know what, this is going to be my adventure. I'm going to see what this opportunity is going to lead me to. And I'm just going to do it because I have this saying that I actually uh, took from Joyce Myers. It's called Do It Afraid. So whatever I do, and if I'm feeling a little for, I just do it anyways, because you just never know what the outcome is and you can't rob yourself of that opportunity because of fear. Yeah. It's an acronym, right? False evidence appearing real. Yeah. Or face everything and rise. Yes, exactly. Right. It depends on how you want to frame it. But as human beings, our fear is often from that which we don't know. And your brain always looks for places and points of reference and where it doesn't have that information. It's like a computer, right? It's going to come back and say, eh, I don't know. I don't know. And for yeah, us, this is that's too like, far out of my comfort zone. Exactly. And or you so think, no, there's that. no way you're going to do it. Yeah. Right. It's like when you're able to face fear and do it anyway, push yourself mm-hmm then you're able to lean into it. And it doesn't mean that it's going to be a positive outcome every time, but at least you've conquered and faced it. And there's a sense of accomplishment and oftentimes, uh, oh, it wasn't as bad as I thought it was, right? Exactly. You talked a little bit about your families and the media as perception of the Middle East and Saudi Arabia in particular, and you being on this adventure kind of fact-finding mission, in addition to, you know, your responsibilities and your role. So what are some of the things that you think that people don't know enough about or get wrong with respect to Saudi Arabia? Well, 
my experience, and I say my experience because everybody has a different experience. So I'm coming from the experience of a Black single woman, and my experience has been a good one. I find the Arabs in Saudi Arabia to be very loving, very giving. The ones I have met and become friends with are it's just like almost like being back at home. Just like you have people in any country, any state or what have you that are a certain way, of course, you're going to have that. Um, that's everywhere. No matter where you go, you're going to have something that you don't like or there's going to be people that are a certain way or what have you. But um, I found most of them to be just ex- exceptionally nice. The one friend that I made when I first got here, we met at like a driving program. Yes, I did learn to drive in Saudi Arabia. That's another story, though. But <laughs> but uh, anyways, she's Saudi, and we became very, very good friends to this day. And I call her kids, my little nieces and nephews. And uh, just to show you the hospitality, and I didn't even get this when I moved down south to Atlanta <laughs> from Chicago area. It gets really cold here. And that's something that people don't realize. It snows <laughs> in the desert. Wow. Really, really cold. When I say cold and I, I'm a Chicago girl, it's cold. And I'll have to share the story if we get time about when I went to Jordan to go to Petra where Indiana Jones was filmed and it snowed and I didn't bring any winter clothes and I was freezing. But like I said, that'll be another story if we have time. But it snows. The desert is exceptionally cold. It's a chilling cold. And this young lady that I met took me to a store, got some warm clothes because it was around Christmas. And I was like, oh, I can take it. I was like, no, uh uh-uh. You need a, more than a hoodie. <laughs> now, to that, to, to say that, that means that you can only really, there's only about three days, maybe a week that it's really cold. And then after that, it's back to the 70s and 80s. So the hottest it gets here, and it gets really hot, is can get up to 130, 140 degrees Fahrenheit. And that's brutal. And you're sweating like a pig. <laughs> Oh my like, word! Please tell me there's air conditioning. <laughs> there is air conditioning. Portable, because I'd have to have like the hat, the, the everything blowing at me exactly. at all times. Exactly. No, there there's air conditioning, but you got to remember back in the in the day when when it all started before it built up. You know, um, if you look back in the history, they traveled. They lived in the desert. They traveled in caravans. And, and tribes. And um, that is something that I respect and really love about Saudi Arabia is that they're very relationship oriented. They love their families. They have big families, <laughs> big houses and big families. And um, but but family is first for them. I think like the media always talks about Muslim this or Muslim that. And really, I've learned if you look at it close enough and be objective, it all really stems the three religions, right? Uh, Judaism, Christianity, Islam, from Abrahamic law, from Abraham. So it's really interesting to learn more about the culture. Saudi Arabia is beautiful. It has really interesting places to visit. Riyadh, which is the capital, is is amazing. They're doing so many changes right now. And actually, if you're in Riyadh, you doesn't really feel like you're in Saudi Arabia because it's just like a really big city. I'm in um, 
Darhan, which is the eastern province. And um, it tends to get more hot and humid here because we're close to the Arabian Gulf. I know that some people call it the Persian Gulf, but they call it the Arabian Gulf. So I'll call it the Arabian Gulf here. But yeah, um, there's a lot of different things that I, I think people don't realize about the Middle East. It's it's truly a beautiful part to be in. It is extremely hot. Um, but there's so much to learn because the history is so rich. Uh, something I did learn here is in Tabuk, which is like the border of Saudi Arabia. Well, it's still Saudi Arabia, but it's like the border of Saudi Arabia to where I, think, I believe it goes into Egypt, is where uh, Moses was appeared to uh, by God at the burning bush. And wow. here I thought it always was like in Egypt, but it's real close to Egypt. But there's yeah. a, if you do the research, you'll see that there's a lot of history um, that goes here. So it's just fascinating to me to be here, to see all the different, you know, the Red Sea, the Persian Gulf, I'm sorry, the Arabian Gulf, and just other places that uh, you've read about uh, perhaps in the Bible or you've read someplace or heard, and just to see these different journeys that um, people took to get here. It's just a lot of history and it's very rich. We'll be right back. Are you a Caribbean American? Are you looking for a podcast that truly speaks to your culture and identity? Look no further than Carry On Friends, the ultimate destination for all things Caribbean American, hosted by me, Carrie Ann. Dive deep into topics such as culture, heritage, and everyday life through the unique lens of the Caribbean American experience. You'll walk away feeling more connected to your roots. Follow and listen on Apple Podcasts so you'll never miss an episode of Carry On Friends, the Caribbean American experience. Your Caribbean American community awaits. Yeah, it's fascinating. And it sounds like you also have <laughs> really experienced a, a cultural immersion. Mm-hmm. And among that, right, is also language, which we can't ignore <laughs> in the conversation. And so I know you talked about yeah, how welcoming, how familial, and all of the sights and sounds that you've been able to experience. And mm-hmm. so with that, I'm assuming, and like I said, always correct me. I'm assuming you didn't have a foundation in Arabic okay, before. Right? <laughs> Your assumption is absolutely correct. Got it. Very okay. Good. Yeah, buddy. So, um, <laughs> huh. So the good thing is most of the Middle East, including, well, Saudi Arabia, because you, you look at the GCC countries, right? And that's like um, Saudi Arabia, Lebanon, Dubai, which is UAE, Jordan, and I'm missing a couple other ones. I think maybe, I want to say maybe, is it Iran? You have all these countries, which is, they're called like the GCC countries, and they do speak English. That is one of their, um, not first language, but maybe second or third languages. Uh, Lebanon is French and Arabic. So they speak French and Arabic, but they also speak English over there. And what's interesting about Saudi Arabia is that it's home to expats from about almost 60 different cultures. So you have people from Pakistan, India, Europe, the UK, America, South America, 
Bangladesh, that can be challenging because obviously you have all these different dialects, like I think Urdu is Pakistan and then Hindi is in India. I think that's like the mother tongue, but Urdu and Hindi are, are close. So that can be challenging. The first time when I got here, I didn't run into a lot of people that knew English. So that's where Google Translate comes in. Google Translate becomes your best friend. And then if you like to play charades, first words, <laughs> you learn how to communicate. You really do. But for the most part, everyone speaks English. It might be the country actually in general, because a lot of people go get educated in the in the UK, Europe, and the US. So they speak pretty fluent English, definitely better than we would ever speak Arabic. And it's a tough language to learn because imagine we read left to right. And when you learn Arabic, it's right to left. My first day on the job, the computer, the keyboard has the Arabic letters. And I was like, oh, oh my and word. Like, and I was trying to find out, well, where is Because, <laughs> you, you know, the things that you don't even think about, right? The paper size is different. Like you, like I bought a printer and I'm like, why does the paper fit? Because the paper is longer. And 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 because uh, it's not like eight and a half by 11. So the paper is like longer and thinner you don't think about. And it's fascinating to me because you talked about writing and instructional design, which is, as you mentioned, a very detailed process oriented field. And then to be in Saudi Arabia and having an Arabic keyboard and, and with the kind of work that you are doing, how did you manage that kind of culture shock? Um, it was tough, but what I, I should say, it had the Arabic letters, but it does have the letters, our English letters and numbers, but it's still not quite the QWERTY. It's, it's QWERTY, but it's not QWERTY, if that makes sense. It's, it's, it's different. But managing the culture shock overall, it took me a while because it was just so different. I mean, everything that you're used to from grocery shopping to your bank accounts to you know, just being around your friends and by this culture being so opposite of America, because, you know, when I first got here, uh, you still have to wear an abaya and I still have to wear an abaya in some places. I don't have to wear a niqab. The niqab is the one where you just see the, the eyes and you don't see anything else and they tie it. But in, but most people like uh, Egyptians and what have you, you just wear like a hijab and then the abaya. So that was really tough. Um, because, you know, we're not used to wearing a buy. And then especially, like I just told you how hot it gets here. And you're just like, oh, my God. So you have the abaya, the heat. And I'll just add this in to make everybody laugh. And if you go through the changes of life, now you have the abaya, the heat, and your body to deal with. <laughs> So it's like a, a flame, a torch exactly. <laughs> under you're everything like, in, in addition. Oh, it's brutal. And you're just like, oh, my God, help me. <laughs> wow. Oh, my goodness. So, but you've been there four years. So yeah, I've been here four years. I'm not used to the heat. I am not used to the heat. The heat goes from March. So imagine this this hotness of 100 plus from March till about the end of October and the middle of November. That's intense. That's intense. It's very intense. 
you don't like the heat, this is not the place to be. <laughs> <laughs> note to self, note to self. Exactly. So let's talk a little bit about quality of life and things that you do, because as you mentioned, <laughs> there's a lot of temperature <laughs> adjustment, exactly. a lot of heat going on. And because it's a Muslim country, so there aren't a lot of those typical creature comforts that you would find in a Western society, like bars and things like that. So what have you been able to do or enjoy outside of, like you mentioned, some travel? But I think for anyone who's listening that might be curious or interested, what is a typical day or what are some of the experiences you've been able to enjoy? Well, a typical day for me is I usually get up at 3 a.m., and I'll go exercise. And you probably guess the reason I get up that early is because if I don't get up that early, the sun's going to be up by, this is especially in the summer, by six o'clock. And yeah, there's just no way. So I become like a vampire during those months. And actually the culture is, is like that. They'll sleep very late on the day and the weekends and they come out at night. And that's probably the reason they do that is because it's so hot during the day. But after I exercise, then I will probably come in. I'm always upskilling, reskilling, you know, you know, do the computer stuff and everything. But for, for things that, to do around town or things uh, extracurricular activities. If you're living here, if you like to eat, there's really good food places. The food is amazing. Mediterranean food, Lebanese food, a foodie. You would do great here because there's just so many places to um, go and enjoy. But I'm not a foodie. <laughs> so occasionally I'll go out and I will enjoy it. But we just got a movie theater. Um, I was telling Krishan this earlier. So we just got a movie theater, I think, about two years ago, if I'm not mistaken. So that helps. So we get to go see uh, the movies. Um, it's nice. Some movies don't come, needless to say, you know why. But it's, it's nice to be able to do that. Now, as far as, like, uh, bars or dancing or things that you're used to at home, uh, you go into another country next door to Bahrain. <laughs> so everybody goes to Bahrain. The saying is, it's better in Bahrain. Ah, and get your bar Saudis, on in Bahrain. Okay. Yeah. So even Saudis go to Bahrain. So everybody goes to Bahrain. Bahrain is just like any other place. It actually has a naval base there. You know, it's just like any, as soon as you cross over, it's like, oh, wow, I'm back at home. I mean, you see people out wearing shorts, you know, wearing whatever. You do have people that still wear bios over there because you still are in the Middle East. Just like if you go to Dubai. I mean, you go to Dubai. Dubai is like living, it's like a little Vegas. You don't even realize you're in the Middle East in Dubai. But That's so true. Are. When I went to Dubai, I was just like, oh, this, this feels like Vegas. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and they did that on purpose, right? So they can attract more tourists. But yeah, so um, you go over to Bahrain and spend a weekend and then you come back over here and, you know, but there's sites to see. It depends on really what you're interested in. I would say that the country definitely caters more to family versus a single person in general, because like I said, it's a, it's a very family oriented culture, but um, it's changing. You're seeing a lot more changes that are going in another direction than from what it used to be. 
So let's talk a little bit about safety and cost of living, because I'm curious about that. You know, you talked about being a single woman there and many people are in a family system, family unit. Mm -hmm. And so as you are navigating, you know, driving, doing all the things, (laughs) how do you feel in terms of either physical and or psychological safety? I'll start with the driving. So driving is very challenging. I usually, so I live kind of like on, it's not a military base, but it's like a camp where uh, where I work at, you are able to live on, on camp, what they call it, versus off camp. So I don't drive off camp. I usually have a driver or a taxi or whatever because it can be very challenging. And that's something, if you are going to be a digital nomad or an expat, you really want to find out which side of the road they drive on and how many accidents they have weekly (laughs) and how the driving habits are, because I'm going to tell you that I have been in Mexico. I've been in Texas probably will do really well here. (laughs) It can be very dangerous and um, it can be very challenging as well. But for the most part, as far as safety is concerned, this place is, Absolute safe. I mean, I feel safer here than I do in the U.S. for many reasons. Um, First and foremost, I don't have to worry about DWB. You know, I don't have to worry about that period because they appear to be very accepting of uh, different races. But like I tell people, it doesn't matter where you go. You're going to have racism or casteism. And it's just, it's just part of life. What happens though, is that obviously you have racism in the U.S. and a lot of people that are here from the U.S., they bring that with them. So that is the racism that you would have here. You can lead the horse to the water, but you can't make them drink. So even though you take a person out of their environment, it's a mindset, right? So they're racist in the U.S., they're gonna be racist here. Some people have changed. I've seen that with my own eyes which is really interesting because you can't come here and live amongst, uh, there's 67, 67 to 70 different cultures here. So it would be really hard, you know, to be racist when now you're the spot, right? Because we're always the ones that go in the room and we look around and we don't see too many of us, but now it's flipped because that's all you see are people of color. And, um, I think it's a good experience for a lot of people that are not people of color to see what it actually feels like to be in a room where they're, where they're the spot, I guess you can say. (laughs) I don't want to say spot, but you know, you know what I mean? I'm, I'm trying to look for a more appropriate word, but a person that is not of color that stands out because, you know, we're always adapting to that. I call it the switch. Most of us know what the switch is. As far as safety, like I said, I, I go out running, jogging, working out at 3 a.m. in the morning. I would never do that. <laughs> I would nope, never nope, do nope. that in, in, in the U.S., no matter where it was. Um, yeah, that just would not be safe. Not even if I had a gun. <laughs> yeah. Oof. That's, just not, that's just not safe. So. But yeah, it's a very safe place. I had an experience when I first got here. I had forgot my purse at this luncheon place we were eating at. And I had money because I was going to open my bank account. 
and do the exchange. And it was quite a bit. Um, I think it might have been like maybe $1,200. And so I left the purse there because I forgot I had left it there. It was there for about two and a half hours before I noticed it was gone. And I came back, everything was intact. Wow. Yeah, you would not, yeah. you would have a, <laughs> if you had a purse that you okay. came back to, yes. if it had money in the purse yes. know, in the United States, that's how yeah. it would have been like, if or if, if but more no. than likely no. <laughs> no definitely that's not. That's amazing. So, so yeah, is so it amazing. like a lower cost of living? Or I think some people have a perception that the Middle East, because of, you know, again, things that you see in the media, things you see on a feed, right? You think of oil and, like you said, big homes, a high degree of wealth and mm -hmm. opulence. Do you find that that also, well, one, whether or not it's true, along with that, is it where you feel like, okay, you know, the standard of living that I have here is something that, you know, like I said, part of it, I guess, because you've been there so long, right, you've adapted to, do you find like it's like super expensive or um, much more reasonable than you had first thought? So your first question, it, it depends on where you are. In, in the Middle East, uh, you've been to Dubai. Dubai, just like they have that um, reality show on Netflix, Bling, Dubai Bling or Bling Dubai or whatever. I, I haven't watched it because I just refuse to watch that reality show. <laughs> yeah, I don't but like anyways, <laughs> Dubai is very, very expensive. I, I mean, there's just, there's no getting around it. It's just like Vegas, right? Um, I was walking around there and at some point it was just so much like beauty and just things that just blew my the mind and the cars and the jewelry. And I was like, if I could give somebody my eyes, like nobody <laughs> would believe me. They would have to like, see, it was just, it was wild. It was wild. No, so yes, I agree. It's very expensive here. It's not so expensive. It's, it depends. So just like you have anywhere else, you have, you know, you have like the working class, you have the rich, the wealthier, what have you, and then maybe the middle class or what have you. As far as that's concerned, it's Saudi Reels. It's S-A-R, SAR. And it is 3.75. The exchange rate is 3.75 to one American dollar. So you get almost four Saudi Reels to one American dollar. So if you do the math there, you're actually getting more bang for your buck, literally, right? But it can be expensive. So like, for example, in the in the US, we have state taxes and taxes, and I'll wait for you to bring that up because that is something you wanna know about taxes, being a US citizen. So I would say that an apartment here, depending on where you live and what kind of apartment you want, you'd probably be able to find a pretty decent one for maybe about $400, $500. So whatever that is in SAR, and they do um, have some apartments that are furnished. And then, of course, they do have apartments that cost more than that. And it just really depends on your preference. But I've had some friends that live off camp and they have pretty decent apartments and what have you. And um, that's 
you know, that's how much they're paying for them, which I think is a pretty good deal considering in America, I think what the average is like, what, $1,600 or $900 in the city or $2,000. Yeah. I was just reading this morning, Manhattan, the median price of an apartment is now over $4,000. That's crazy. Yeah. That's crazy. I don't even know how people could afford that. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. I was like, the median? And that That doesn't even make any sense. Yeah, because there was a huge exodus during the pandemic, especially during Mm -hmm. lockdown, where people were like, okay, I'm remote. I make all this money. Why am I paying all this money in taxes? I'm going to go to a non-tax state or a warmer climate or whatever, right? People became more migratory. You know, inflation and all these other factors, it is definitely there and climbing and climbing. Got to work on our economy in the U.S., Because at some point, you can't allow the equilibrium to be drastically altered, right? You can't swing the pendulum so far where people are priced out of home ownership. And then they're forced into rental, which I have no problem being a renter. (laughs) I've owned multiple homes in my life (laughs) and I love renting. Okay. (laughs) My black suit is like, here's the keys, boo. I'm out the door. Right. I like no stress. Don't have to worry about anything. Oh yeah. But with renting right now, because of so much tumult and volatility, you're seeing what I believe to be price gouging. And so you have landlords that are taking advantage of the macroeconomics and unjustifiably raising rent. And so you have it on both ends, right? I can't afford to buy a home because the cost of living is such that I can't save to a rate that I can have even a down payment. And if Mm -hmm. I did, I'm getting the higher interest rate. And then on the other side, well, now I'm getting priced out of my renter's market. I may have been able to afford the lease, but now my rent has gone up 25, 30% and my paycheck You know, is not even keeping pace with inflation. So there has to be some level, in my opinion, of intervention because you see it in the marketplace, not only in housing, but in other areas, the grocery store, et cetera, where, like I said, I believe that a lot of this is not driven by, you know, high inflationary times. It's kind of people capitalizing on the moment and not considering the real world consequences of people becoming unhoused and displaced. Yes, definitely reactive mode versus proactive mode. And unfortunately, I see it there in the US, but I think it's also happening in the UK has a big problem with what's going on there after they've made, you know, a decision to leave Brexit. Ooh, bad idea. Yeah, but we'll, that's another conversation, that's, that's too. A, that's a conversation for another episode. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk taxes. As a U.S. citizen, and probably should state that uh, for, for those of you who don't know, what do they say? Like the two things in life are certain, death and taxes. Yes, death so and taxes and, you can, your na- and, and your color, right? Right, that's exactly. My, that's what my dad told me. He goes... There's three things you're going to have to do, Tiffany. You're going to have to stay black. You're going to have to pay taxes. And then one day you're going to die. 
my dad. I love him dearly. God rest his soul. He yes. was in the military and he raised me hardcore because he knew that life would be tough. Mm. And I'm grateful for it because every lesson that he's taught me has has um, catapulted me to where I am, him and my mom. Mm. But taxes uh, with the U.S., as you know, Krishan, they follow you wherever you go. Like a stalker. Worse yes. <laughs> than a stalker. Right. At least a stalker, you can probably kill him or something. <laughs> but you can't. I don't think you can kill the taxes. No, nope, no. Nope. I mean, the only way you can do it is to give up your citizenship. And exactly. that is not advised. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. Because you have a lot of people. Oh, my gosh. So many people who want to give up their citizenship. And, you know, you always think that the grass is greener. I'm here to tell you it is not greener. You better keep your American citizenship as long as you have that right, because they're already trying to take it away from us anyways. And people died so we could vote and have that right. So don't give it up. Taxes will follow you wherever you go. That's just something it's only with a U.S. person. It's not with UK yet. Australia is trying to make theirs that way. I heard from a coworker that I used to work with who was from Australia. You definitely will get taxed on your income. Now, the great thing about it is as an expat, and this has nothing to do, it's not country specific, but the first, I believe I have to check and see if they changed it. The first 110 thousand is either 110 or 115 thousand dollars that you make you're not taxed on that and then after that you're taxed on any money after that at the regular tax levels and the other thing is that you want to keep in mind when you work abroad is that you're no longer paying into your social security bucket so when you work abroad and you know everyone's different where they are in their life if you're young then that's great and you have time, but if you're like maybe older, start a little late, such as myself, <laughs> then you you really want to take that into consideration because that will decrease your bucket if you're depending on that. If you're not depending on them, that's good. And not I'm not depending on that. If it's there, that's great. But unfortunately, you know, I don't know what that will be. So those are the things you want to remember. You want Number one, you want to remember that taxes are going to follow you regardless where you go. It's not country specific. Do not want to give up your American citizenship. That would be a bad move, but that is up to you. But I suggest you do your homework. And then the third thing is that the tax laws state that on the first 110 or 115,000, you will not be taxed. And then everything after that, you will be taxed. My fourth point was the fact that you want to make sure that you have something that's going to compensate for your Social Security bucket if you're paying into that. And another thing I want to mention, Krishan, that's really important, too, is if you're coming over as a person who owns a home, that's a whole nother thing. A setting that you have to go through because you want to set up systems or people like if you're going to sell your home, then that's great. I own a home. I didn't sell it. I'm really happy I did not because especially with where we're at. But let me tell you, it has been challenging because I had to set up systems. I had to make it a smart house. 
There's a whole bunch of things that you have to really consider regarding that, especially if you're going to use, leave the utilities and stuff on, how or who's going to come over and run the water once a month. If you have a car, I have a car. My car went dead like the first two years because no one was driving it. And, you know, it's just all these things I did not know and I have to learn. The other thing is that your life becomes even more challenging because America, the U.S., especially bank platforms, they don't allow for international numbers. So if you're in the military, you know, you have to leave somebody in charge and you can just like use their number. And I think they use a AFO number or what have you. But if you're an expat or a digital nomad, um, they can't take that number. Like my number is a Saudi number. I do have a, a, a U.S. number uh, in Atlanta for family and friends. And I had to get that for two-way authentication because when I originally came over here and had my American number, I got rid of it because I was just paying money and I wasn't using it. And when I got rid of it, my bank locked me out for six months. Yes, SunTrust. Yeah, you do not want to get rid of that, you know, and I have some information in the course that we talk about like how to set your numbers up because especially now with banking, a lot of people are encountering challenges because they want to cut the cord, right? But you need to be careful about how or when to to cut the cord. Have you been able to access the healthcare system there? And what is that like? So the healthcare system here is a free healthcare. It is similar, I would say, probably, I, I don't, I've never lived anywhere else that had free healthcare. So I guess from my colleagues, it's similar to like Canada, maybe Europe and the UK. I thought I would be a fan of free healthcare, but that's something that I'm really undecisive on. And I'm kind of not sure if I want the US to go that way. Free healthcare is great that you can get it, but in some respects, it's not so great because you have to wait for a very, very long time to get something that could be very pertinent to your health, a surgery or what have you. That can be another conversation, but it is free healthcare system here. I would say that wherever you go to check out the healthcare and really make sure the United States does have one of the best healthcare systems in the world, whether we know it or want to believe it or not. I think Finland or was it Finland or Sweden, one of those, they also have a really good one. As far as healthcare, it is free here. It suffices. I mean, the doctors, do they speak English or they have bedside manner that's consistent with what you've experienced in the U.S.? That depends on the doctor. And um, most of the doctors do speak English or some uh, enough English to help you or find out. Some of the doctors are all around, like I was talking about the GCC countries. Um, they're not all, uh, they're all Arab, like whether it's Egypt or, you know, from different uh, countries uh, surrounding uh, Saudi Arabia. But like I said, it's just a matter of doing your homework. I think if I had a pending healthcare issue, something that was really serious, I would have to really take that into consideration and look at, you know, weigh the cost and the benefits of it and go from there. Because some things, one thing that I realized here when it comes to medications, 
they're not as strong, like the painkillers are not as strong as they are in the US. And you're just like, what am I supposed to do with this? <laughs> you know? like, this ain't even putting me to sleep. Oh no. For me, you know. Right. But, Surprise. Yeah. Right. So, you know, um, I'm a fan of Percocet. <laughs> when I'm in pain. When is that bad? That's what yes. you want to make sure. I don't want to feel anything. I don't want to see anything. I don't want to hear anything. So that's something that you, you know, I've, I've been blessed that I, I don't have to take anything and I'm not on any medic meds or anything, but that is something you definitely want to do your research on and see if they have compatible meds because they're not the same. They're different over here. They use a lot of uh, medicines that come from the UK and Europe and other countries. So uh, you're not going to get like Advil. You're not going to get that here. You're not going to get a uh, night quilt, which I love <laughs> uh, when you have a cold. And I, I bring these things back with me and I sometimes might share it with my colleagues or something like, oh, that's good. Can you bring me some back when you go back? Because, you know, the, the strength, the, the strength and the, the actual uh, content, I should say, is just much stronger. Wow. That's good to know because <laughs> a lot of times I think, you know, and especially in a lot of the groups I'm in, people are most surprised when they go to another country and they can't find the prescription that they yeah. had or the strength because the brand names are different yeah. or, you know, aren't looking at the ingredient level, right, to find a comparable one and definitely recommend people to do their due diligence. Or you can also sign up for the Alexa Global Move Abroad course. <laughs> Which, by um, the way, is a very good course. Thank you. I appreciate it. <laughs> I appreciate you for doing it. <laughs> I just want to help the people get to salvation, <laughs> get their freedom papers. <laughs> um, so Tiffany, as we close, what is next for you? Well, for me, I think what I'm going to do is I am actually writing a book on my experience. So I'm looking to hopefully, I can't say when that's going to be finished, but I'm looking to do that. I'm also looking to put together just like a high level, like an e-learning course to give that person, if you're interested in becoming an expat or digital nomad, some things like, is this a good decision for me? Is this good for my personality and who I am and where I am on the journey? So I want to be like you, Krishan, when I grow up. You're amazing. Oh my gosh. Thank you. Thank so. you. You're amazing. I'm like, you're like Saudi Arabia. I'm like, oh, I definitely need to have a conversation with you. So, but no, I'm, I'm just uh, grateful that we met and um, you shared so much of your life and your research with people and everybody. Definitely. If you haven't had an opportunity, you want to check out her class for moving abroad. It's really good. I wish I had it before I moved abroad, but um, it's all good now because now I look at the different things and stuff. So that's really, really important. I guess the next steps for me too would be continuing to collaborate with um, other people such as yourself and uh, just educate our people, you know, other black people that this is possible. You're not stuck in a rut. You're not incapable. You're not, you know, no matter what people tell you, you're able to do whatever you want. And it all starts in the mind. And, and trust me, I know what it's like to have stinking thinking. I know what it's like to be afraid, but you can overcome it. And once you overcome it, you'll just be so happy that you did. And there's no turning back. <laughs>
So that's it. Yes, I love that. That's the perfect way to end this conversation because knowledge is power. And I look forward to continuing conversations with you and collaborations. And I'm so excited for your journey and continued evolution. It's been an honor to have you as a guest on the Black Global Podcast. And I know a lot of people when they listen to this episode are going to be surprised as well as inspired by your journey. Thank you. I appreciate you. I, I am so grateful to you and for your time. So thank you. Thank you for listening to the Blackseat Global Podcast. For more information on today's episode, be sure to visit our website at blackseatglobal.com. It's not only possible to live out your dreams unbothered and in full color, it is your birthright. Are you trying to sort out health plans, banking, VPN, and other connectivity for your move abroad? Well, have no fear. We've got you with the Move Abroad Starter Kit. Get yours today at blacksitglobal.com resources. That's blacksitglobal.com resources.